coming out there on that horizon. Oh, there is one. Never mind, I got one. Thank you. Anybody ever feel like that? Yeah, sometimes. <laughs> We're talking about, <laughs> thank you, Gavin. <laughs> you don't look like that, but you feel like that, yeah? We're doing a series um, on stress. We're actually finishing it up. And uh, one of the most stressful things that happens to us is decisions. Anybody ever feel stressful about the decisions that they have to make? You know what I'm saying? Yes. Right there. Danielle, this is for you. It is for you. I want you to know that I did this for you. This is specifically for you. She talked to me last night, we were t- or last week we were talking about stress, and she's like, decisions really stress me out. I was like, wow, that's a good one. I'm going to go down that this week. So um, we have a video for you, and this video just kind of illustrates how we feel sometimes. So we got the audio. You can rewind it once you get the audio back it up. Let's see if we can get the whole thing. Have your one man band, bro. Jack abandoned you, didn't he? Anybody ever feel that way? Decisions create stress. What's beautiful about the Bible is it answers not only our spiritual condition, but it actually answers our human condition. And the scripture has a lot to say about decision making. It actually gives us the context through which we can make decisions. And the Bible gives us a grid by which we can make decisions. And so what I'll just run you through the, the notes here. Decisions determine your destiny. And what's important about this is that Jesus has dreams, purposes, and visions for your life. Does anybody know that's true? He does. But those dreams, those purposes, and those visions that God has for you are determined by the decisions that you make. What the Bible teaches us 
It's not what the culture says. We value somebody who can make quick decisions. The scripture doesn't value the one who makes quick decisions. The, the scripture values the one who makes wise decisions. And so the Bible's not going to teach you how to make decisions quickly, but it will teach you how to make decisions wisely. And that's really the point. Anybody ever made hasty decisions and lived to regret them? Proverbs 12 or 19.2 says, hasty actions lead to mistakes. Anybody ever made a quick decision and you're like, what did I do? How did I not do? What, how did I end up here? And so dreams, visions, and destiny require you to make decisions. God has a dream. God has a vision. God has a destiny for you. And what oftentimes happens is Christians want to seek the Lord and they get visions and dreams and they hear echoes within their heart and God shows them something. But what we do oftentimes is we continue to hold it up as a dream. So long as we hold it up as a dream, it's safe. Once we start committing to it, and once we start making decisions towards the dream, then it becomes risky. And so oftentimes people don't actualize their dreams, the visions, or the passions that God has placed in front of them because they won't make the decisions in the directions in which he is leading. Abraham had a vision. The Lord said, I'm going to make you a great nation. Leave everything that you know, go out this way, and I'm going to do something amazing with your life. He had a vision. But in order for that to happen, Abraham had to decide to leave everything he knew behind. He had, to, he had to let everything go in order to become what he was called to be. Noah had a vision to build the ark, but he had to decide to do it. It wasn't enough that the Lord showed him a vision, gave him the plans and everything. Noah had to actually make the decision and do it. Moses had a vision to lead the people. The Lord showed him, I want you to go, and I want you to lead these people. I want you to take them out of the bondage and the place that they are, and I want you to bring them into this place of freedom that I have for them. But in order to do that, uh, Moses had to confront Pharaoh. So he had to make the decision to actually do it. So it's not enough oftentimes. We have a vision of what we are, what we want to be, or what God is showing us, or even a direction. So it's necessary not to just have vision. It's necessary to have decision. That rhymed. Vision cannot. Vision means nothing without decision. There you go. <laughs> I heard there was rapping going on, so I just thought I'd practice for Oh, it's not that kind of rapping? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> so, there's, so we're going to talk about six steps to making good decisions. Anybody want to know how to make good decisions? The Bible's going to give you a grid. So we're going to have a grid that we can follow, something that we can run our decision-making process through, and we can see if we're making good decisions, or we can at least have a template that we can use to make good decisions. And then at the end, I'm going to talk about, as a Christian, or as a person, as a human being, to actually become who you are, there's four important decisions that are most of all. This first part, if you're a Christian, this is what, what decision-making looks like. This isn't the six points, but these are the elements. These are the ingredients into a good decision. So, you know, you guys, you're baking. Anybody bake anything for um, holidays? Cook anything for holidays? Some of you guys are, like, hardcore, you know. Uh, me, no. I, I'm past that stage. It's like, we just go buy it, you know, so we just go get it and stuff like that. But anyway, we, so we, there's ingredients that have to happen. Uh, Liz posted this cupcake thing, that uh, peanut butter thing, man. That was awesome. And they show you all the ingredients that go into making these muffins. Well, there's ingredients that go in to making a good decision. Prayer. If you're a Christian, the first thing is prayer, communication. Scripture. Understanding what God's will is through the Scripture. Spirit. Letting the Spirit speak to you. And then lastly, one of the ingredients is courage. Actually making the decision. The Bible says in James chapter 1, if you are like that, like what? unable to make up your mind, and you are undecided in all that you do, then you must not think you will receive anything from the Lord. Why will you not receive anything from the Lord if you are undecided? 
You're undecided and non-committal in a direction, so you will never receive anything. Because God's purposes and visions are related to the decisions and the commitments that you make. Does that make sense? We have to make decisions. And he says, if you don't, if you can remain undecided, it's not God's will that you be undecided. That's not his will. Double-mindedness is disastrous. Back and forth, not sure, back and forth, back and forth. Make a decision and move down that path. So what are the elements of making a good decision? What are the steps in making a good decision? Well, the first thing is to ask what Jesus would want. That's step one. We're followers of what? Of who? Who do we follow? Yeah, we're followers of Jesus. And so if we're going to follow Jesus, we have to understand what it is he would want. And so we have to emulate him and model him and follow after what he would want. This is the question we ask as Christians. What would Jesus want in this circumstance? Proverbs 28, 26. And let's just say it together. Well, I'll read it and then we're going to we'll do some interaction on it. It says, those who trust in their own insight are foolish, but the ones who walk in wisdom are safe. And so let's just say this together. If I trust in my own insight... I am foolish, but if I walk in wisdom, I will be safe. So what's the question? Where does wisdom come from, right? It's easy to just say, oh, I need to have wisdom. You know, yeah, wisdom, 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 but we need to know where wisdom comes from. Wisdom comes from the Lord. So a lot of our problems come through what we think, feel, and understand, So the first thing we have to do is understand what the Lord would have us to do. So if the decision that you're going to make is outside of God's economy, you probably shouldn't make it. If the decision that you're going to make is outside of God's revealed will, you probably shouldn't make it. I would say you shouldn't make it. James says, if you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he will give it to you and he will not push you away for asking. This is the idea of pretending to be wise rather than actually being wise. Oftentimes we pretend we're wise when we're really not, right? One of the key aspects, if you're a student of the scripture, is um, understanding there's a study of the disciples. I may do this at some point, but there's a study of the lives of the disciples. And one of the most interesting figures among the disciples was a guy named Peter. Now, what made Peter different than every one of the other disciples was that Peter asked questions. He asked the questions nobody else was willing to ask. He said, there's an elephant in the room. You know, he was willing to talk about the obvious. He was willing to ask the questions nobody else wanted to ask. And in case you don't know, if you read your Bible and you read the things that Jesus said, they're not always easy to understand. Can we agree with that? And you can, if you, we understand what communion is, this is an easy one. We understand now what communion is. It's the representative of the blood that he shed and the body that he gave for us. We understand that. But they had no idea what that meant. And so Jesus would look at his disciples and says, unless you drink of my blood and eat of my body, you have no part in me. And people got mad and they got offended and they were pushed away from him because they didn't understand what it was that he was saying. And nobody asked the question. Nobody asked the question. Peter would be the guy when Jesus would say this hard stuff and everybody would be rocking back and forth pretending that they knew. Oh yeah, absolutely, I know. You guys get what he's saying? Oh yeah, absolutely. Just don't ask him to explain it, but yeah, I understand what he's saying. And everybody was pretending to be wise when they actually weren't. And Peter would be the guy going, what does this mean? What does this mean? You just said this thing, Lord. What does this mean? I have no idea what you're you're saying. And so the Lord would answer him. And so when when we need wisdom, we ask him. When there's things difficult for us, we ask him. We ask him, what does this mean? The Bible is revealed through something called revelation. 
destiny is revealed through revelation. The Holy Spirit is essential to the walk of the believer. We don't follow so much principles as much as we follow principles activated by spiritual truth. We worship God in spirit and truth. We have spiritual revelation or spiritual insight. And so these things that God gives to us are activated through revelation. Peter, again, he asked Steve, Jesus said, who do men say that I am? And when you're downtown washing your camel, what are guys talking about? Are they out talking about me? And if they are, are they ta- who are they saying that I am? And Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And he said, blessed are you, Peter. This, you didn't, you're not smart enough to figure this out on your own. That's basically what Jesus is saying to him. Right? Peter, you're not that smart. This revelation, this understanding into who I am was revealed to you. Revelation is powerful to the Christian. We get revealed truth and revealed knowledge. His Bible, the Bible is understood through revelation. That's why we just don't read it as a text. We seek understanding. We don't read it as a text. We read it and, and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal. Anybody ever know what I'm talking about? You're reading the Bible, you ask the Holy Spirit to show you something, and some, something just jumps off a page at you. And you're just like, wow, I never saw it that way before. You know, that's how that's that's because the Bible's alive, and that's because the Spirit activates the Word. So if we're lacking wisdom, first thing we do is we ask what Jesus would want. We understand his revealed will, we understand his character in his heart, and we understand his overall purposes. And we understand those things. Our first grid is to understand that, as a Christian, is to make decisions in line with that. And if we need wisdom, we ask the Lord for wisdom. One of the biggest problems, next slide, one of the biggest problems Christians have, and what I often see with the Christian, is that God will give you a vision, he will give you a revelation, he will give you a purpose, and two things happen. Either we hold it up as a dream and never make a decision, or we take the responsibility and we think that it's our job to figure out what it is he just told us. He shows you a vision of the future. He says, this is where I want you to go. Or he says, this is where you're going to be. And then all of a sudden, we start mapping out a course to get us there. That's a big, that's a human error. Our human error is believing is not ever making a decision in the direction of the vision. And our second human error is thinking that we actually have to figure out how to do what it is he told us. The best thing you can do is when Jesus shows you something, and he shows me things all the time, and he says, I want you to do this. I want you to do this. Did we not just have a meeting, Lupe? And didn't you just go, that's a very ambitious plan, Kevin. (laughs) And I said, yep, and I don't know what I'm doing. You know, but this is the ambitious plan that God is laying out in front of us. And it's like, like, if this is the ambitious plan that he is showing you, it's like my first response is, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm doing. So I need the wisdom to accomplish that, and I need to make the decisions in the right direction to accomplish the things that he's showing you. So the vision, okay, so let me just give you a thing on vision. When God shows you a vision, his desire is to partner with you. He's not just dumping it on you, saying, here, figure it out. I've given you a vision. Now I need you to come back to me with a, with a business plan and an activation plan. That's not what he's intending. He's giving you a vision so that now you are now relying upon him for the steps, the direction, the people, the resources to accomplish the vision. Does that make sense? And so I've spent my life, and you know, and listen, I'm, I'm not different than a lot. This is just the truths that God has shown me, is that God showed, I've seen it happen time and again. And people still do it. God gave me a vision. This is the purpose. And so now, I'm got, and now it's my responsibility to figure it out. It's not your responsibility to figure it out. It's your responsibility to interact with God on what the steps are. Uh, one of my favorite movie stories is um, Lord of the Rings. Anybody Lord of the Rings fans out there? Yeah. Woo! Okay. So uh, they've got to destroy the ring. You know the story of the first one. They need to destroy the ring. Somebody's got to take the ring to the 
to the black gate. They've got to take it to Mount Doom and destroy the ring. And everybody's arguing, no, we should keep it. No, we should destroy it. No, we should use it. And then uh, little Frodo steps up and goes, I will take the ring. I'll do it. Anybody know what he says next? But I don't know the way. It's like classic. I'm willing to do this, but I have no idea what I'm doing. You know? That's the whole point. Jesus isn't asking you to be an intellectual. He's not asking you to have all the answers. He's asking you to be willing. If I show you something and point you in a direction, are you willing? I'm willing, Lord. Then rely upon me for the direction. Rely upon me for the steps. Pull on me for wisdom and get that. That's, that's how it works. So the first thing is, is determining what would Jesus want me to do in this circumstance. Is this, the, is this within the context of the will of the Lord? The second thing is get the facts. Paul, uh, people that fail without getting the facts, oftentimes it's because of uneducated enthusiasm. We run into things and we know nothing about it. You know what I'm saying? Oh, I'm going to do this. And then we run into things and we ended up being at a place, we don't know how we got there because we didn't get the facts. You should gain as much information about whatever decision you are making as, as you can. You're never going to have, let's just say it together, I'll never have all the facts, but I need to have some facts. Okay, so when you're going to make a decision, you don't need, you need to never get all the facts, but you need to have some. Proverbs 13, 16 says, every prudent person works out of knowledge. So if we're prudent, which would be wise, if you're wise, you work from the standpoint of knowledge. But fools flaunt their folly. So the question, as it relates to any decision that you're going to make, is what do I need to know? What are the things that I need to know in order to do this or to make this decision? What is it that I don't know, and what is it that I need to know? Proverbs 18.13 says, How foolish it is to decide something without knowing the facts. Oh, how we do that. Don't we do that? We make decisions, we have opinions, and we really don't know the whole story. Anybody know what I'm talking about? There's two sides, don't know the story. There's th we make decisions related to something we don't understand. It's all that stuff. So we need to get the facts. What do I need to know before I make this decision? What do I not, what do I not know? before I need to make the decision. Number three is to ask for advice. These are the grids. What would Jesus do? What would the Lord have me to do in this situation? Is it within his will? Is it outside of his economy? Is it, is it, is it inside of his revealed will? Is the Lord neutral on it? And so you know there's a lot of decisions in life that the Lord is neutral on. Neutral, when you're praying and you get the negative, well, that's a no, and you get the affirmative, well, that's a yes. You get the neutral, that means it's up to you. There's a lot of decisions in life that Jesus, when you pray about it, he's, it's up to you. There's a lot of areas like that. It's like, well, I just want to make the right decision. And the Lord, if he gives you the neutral, it's like whatever decision you make, I'm going to bless. That's, that's just how he is. That's, again, something that's developed, understanding and hearing him. That type of thing is developed through relationship with him. So number three is ask for advice. Let's just say it together. The more advice I get, the more likely I am to win. I watch NFL, and um, there's different, definitely success principles that you can draw from the NFL. So, ladies, when your husband's watching the NFL, he's actually learning success principles that can be applied in life. It's so true. I got you. <laughs> so the point is, is that, like, if you watch the NFL, what they do, they, they adjust. 
they adjust to situations. They have halftime adjustments. Like you'll watch teams that are getting beat in the first quarter or first half, and they go into the locker room, they make adjustments to their plan, and they come out, and then all of a sudden they're an entirely different team in the second half. Another thing that NFL teams do is they get the facts. So, like, if they play each other and they play different teams that are not in their divisions, if you don't understand that, I won't explain it. But what happens is, is that teams play other teams that are in another team's division. So, like, for instance, if the Dolphins are playing the Eagles and the Eagles are not in the Dolphins' division, the Dolphins will call the Cowboys and say, what do I need to know about the Eagles? And the reason that they do that is because the Cowboys want the Dolphins to beat the Eagles. You understand? And so what they do is they get the facts about the opposing teams that they're playing in order for them to succeed. And so they'll go, oh, when they land up in this formation, look for this play or look for that play or, you know, this guy's not playing up to speed. Their cornerback's, you know, got a hurt leg to, you know, go with him. And they'll just give you different information. So we need to get the facts. We need to ask for advice. And the more advice, the more information we get, the more likely we are to succeed. And Proverbs 24 says, don't go to war without guidance, for there is safety in many counselors. So the question here would be, well, who do I ask for counsel? If I'm not supposed to just jump into something that's a, that's a decision, I should ask for counsel. Where should I get the counsel? Well, you, number one, you should get it from people who are smarter than you. I tell people all the time, you do not need to be the smartest person in the room. You don't. In fact, you should not be the smartest person in the room. Because it means if you're the smartest person in the room, there's no room to grow. You're the ceiling. God help us if you're the ceiling. God help you if I'm the ceiling. We're all, we need people around us that are smarter than us. We need people around us that are more experienced than us. That's the point. So we get it from people who are smarter than you. And different people are smarter than other people in different areas. There are people that are far more smarty, smart at the stock market than I am. You understand? I had a guy one time tell me, listen, don't give financial advice, Kevin. Stick to the gospel. I was like, that's good advice. Thank you for sharing. That I will do. That is my field. This is my area. And so I'm good with that. <laughs> I have a few others. But there are people that are, that are educated and know more about you in certain areas than they do. And you don't want to be the smartest person in the room. Find people that are smarter than you. We talked about it first service. I share this often because it's an embedded truth that you w- where you will be in five years is related to two things. What are you putting in you? What are you reading? This is how to really easily understand it. And the people that you're associating with. Your life, your destiny, your next five years will be determined by what you're taking in because that's going to affect your mentality. And then the second thing is by the people that you're associating with. Just a fact. If you want to grow, you need to get to people that are in higher places than you. If you want to get to a higher, you need to get to a place where people are smarter than you. That's really what you need to do. Get around people who are smarter than you. Get around people who've made similar similar decisions successfully and other people who have made similar decisions unsuccessfully. You can learn from failures. What do you think you did wrong? Sometimes people don't even know what they did wrong. Somebody said experience is the best teacher. Is that true? No. Evaluated experience is the best teacher. Experience doesn't teach you anything unless you evaluate the experience. Unless you're actually looking at it and go, what did I do right so now I can learn from this experience or evaluated experience, what did I do wrong? And many people don't evaluate the experience. That's why they repeat the same experience over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. Yeah, ouch. Because they've never evaluated the experience. Here's another one. How do you get for advice? Books, seminars, and coaching. And here comes the pushback. That costs money, Kevin. Yes, it does. 
success costs money. So does failure. Okay? Success will cost you, and failure will cost you. It just depends on which end of the spectrum you want to pay the price on. So it costs money to succeed, and it costs money to fail. It costs time to succeed. It costs time to fail. It costs emotional commitment to succeed. It costs emotional commitment to fail. Books, seminars, and coaching. Learn from the experience of others, and it's better to be wise than appear wise. Biggest problem sometimes is what we, you know, like for me, is getting around people that are smarter than me and what bothers me in different fields. Now, this might not bother you because you all may be more spiritual than I am, okay? So you just need to pray for me. You may not struggle in this area. But what used to bother me would be people that would be smarter than me in specific areas and they would be younger than me. That would kill me. It didn't mean they were more emotionally developed. It just means that they had an insight into an area that I wasn't seeing, and they were at a different place in the age scale than I was. That bothered me. That bothered me. I don't know if that bothered you, but that bothered me. And I know I used to bother people, too. I was, when I was doing building construction, I was a young guy, and I was, like, lighting it up, and I had a bunch of the old guys going, you know, a couple of guys worked actually worked against me to try to get rid of me because they were jealous of me. Anybody ever had that happen? Yeah, and then there's another guys that would just open and go, oh, you just completely confound me. I'm 20 years older than you. How do you understand and how do you know the things that you know? Well, my secret was Jesus. I just asked the Lord. I asked for wisdom. I'm building buildings. I can't make any money unless I actually know what I'm doing. And then I saw the guys who actually were making money, and I saw what they were doing, and I'm like, well, in order for me to get past this, I need to know that. So how do I know that? And I began to pray, and I began to ask the Lord for insight. And what he did is he expanded my mind, and then what he also did was he put me around people who could actually impart the knowledge to me that I was asking them for. And I had to be wise enough to recognize that this person who is standing here is now imparting me knowledge. I had to learn to lay out buildings. I had to learn to lay out a building, front to back, all of the things that needed to happen. And part of the thing that ended up happening when I was praying and I was asking God for this, he put a guy around me who was actually doing exactly what I was asking for. And you know what he asked me to do? After a long eight, nine-hour grueling day of working construction in a place with no AC, up, down ladders, all the way around, he asked me to come and work for him two hours every night. And then he would pay me virtually nothing, but he would teach me to read print. And he would teach me to do the things. And it wasn't that I didn't learn this in school. I learned residential mainly in school. I was learning commercial, which was a whole other level and a whole other different spectrum. And he said, look, I'll teach you. You're going to come and work for me. I'm not going to pay you for the commute. I'm only going to pay you when you're on site. So sometimes we'd have to drive for an hour and I wouldn't get paid. And then I would be there and he would only teach me when I was snapping lines. That's the only time he would teach me or pay me. So what did it do? It it meant it cost me something. Some people aren't willing to pay a price for anything to go to the level. They just want it to just kind of show up on their door and for it to be handed to them. It doesn't work like that. Most of the time when it's handed to you, you don't respect it. You don't respect it. I have watched time and time again where people have been handed things that other people would kill for. I wouldn't even kill, but certainly, I don't want to use that word here, but you know know what I'm saying. They would really do a lot to get what it is that this person was just handed. And the person that was given the opportunity didn't understand what they had. They had no clue what was in their hands. They had no clue what was being presented to them. And they acted foolishly and they acted without wisdom. And so oftentimes the sacrifice is required so that you will value it. You will value it. 
And from there, I got another guy who was smarter than the guy who taught me before. I was dealing with a guy who was like the savant of uh, building construction. I was working for one of the largest commercial builders down here, and they had this guy who was just a freaking genius. He knew everything, and he showed me all kinds of stuff. And when after I got done learning from him, I walk in. I'm buying out IBM in Boca Raton, and I'm like 25 years old, 24, 25 years old. And they're like, "How's this? Who's your layout guy?" And they'd, I'd come walking in the door, and they'd be like, "This dude, you're gonna lay out this building." And again, I take no credit under myself. I'm just simply showing you things that ended up happening. It's the same thing with the scripture. I asked the Lord to show me. I asked me, show me the keys of wisdom. Put me around people who are smarter than me. Show me the lanes in which I am to go down. This is why coming to church is so important. Wisdom is being imparted to you. Wisdom is being imparted. You're in an atmosphere of the spirit, and wisdom is being imparted to you. We learn from the experience of others. It's better to be wise. Let's just say it together. It is better to be wise than to appear wise. And the way you get around that is ask the questions and make the sacrifices and the commitments that are necessary. Number four, count the cost. Every decision has a price tag. Can we agree? Every decision has a price tag. It's going to cost you emotion. It's going to cost you time. It's going to cost you energy. And it may cost you resources of other kinds. So in other words, count the cost before you make the decision. For which of you, but desiring to build a tower, does not first down, sit down and count the cost, whether they have enough to complete it or not? You have to count the cost. What is this decision going to cost me? Where is this decision going to take me? So often, this is the folly of youth. And if we haven't learned it in our older age, then we are really foolish. But the folly of youth is we make decisions, and I make plenty of them, and I'm probably trying to get past a lot of that, is we make, we make decisions that we don't understand where this decision is going to take you. You do not see, or you have not the foresight of what this decision is going to cost you in terms of the overall picture. It's easier to get in than it is to get out, correct? Here we go. You ready? It's easier to get into a relationship than it is to get out of a relationship. Ouch. Yeah. It's easier to get into debt than it is to get out of debt. True? It's easier to fill your schedule than it is to fulfill your schedule. Yes. Yes. But when we make the decision, we have to ask the question, is it worth it? Anybody ever, this is an old dude, but uh, like 30s, I think this guy was around. H.L. Hunt, anybody know who he is? One of America's first billionaires. Hunt tomato sauce is one of his products. Yeah. <laughs> he said this, success looks like this. Decide what you want and then decide the price you're willing to pay for it. Everything has a price. I want to look like I want to lose 20 pounds. Well, are you willing to pay the price? I want to be teaching and doing these things. Well, are you willing to pay the price? I want to be leading or I want to be this or I want to do that. Well, are you willing to pay the price? What is it that you want and what is the price that is required for you to do that? Sometimes the price is your vulnerability. Sometimes the price isn't always tangible things. It's not always money and things like that. Sometimes it's your ego. What you want is going to cost you your ego. What you want is going to cost you your vulnerability. You see, it's not always just time and money. A lot of times it's interpersonal things that we have to pay. We have to, Jesus is like, you want to follow me? He gives them the features. Listen, following me has a cost. You want to come after me, you must deny yourself. 
Are you willing to pay the price of your ego to follow me? That's, the, that's part of the gospel. That not only, tra- only kind of extrapolates into the kingdom, but that is also a part of everyday life. Am I willing to pay this price? What is it going to cost me to get there? Well, I'm not willing to lay my ego down in order to obtain that. Okay, well, then you won't have it because the price is too high for you. So then you need to adjust your expectation and you need to even adjust your desires. You understand? I want a good marriage, but I'm not really willing to pay the price to be nice to my wife. Well, you got a problem. Mama's not happy, ain't nobody happy. That's just the way it is. I want to have really good kids, but I don't want to pay the price of having to spend time with them. You have a problem. Expectations are wrong. You know, I mean, pick something. I, I mean, I want to be able to succeed, but I don't want to. Ha- I don't want to do those things. Sometimes it's it's commitments. Sometimes it's an ego issue. It's a humility issue. Yeah. But it's easier to get in than it is to get out. Decide what you want and ask yourself, what is the price that needs to be paid and am I willing to pay it? Am I willing to pay it? Yeah. That was what happened to me when I was doing it. I had to, pay, I had to give this guy extra time. I had to give him extra time. I didn't want to give him extra time. Nobody else on the job would do it. There were other guys like me on the job. Nobody else wanted to give the time to go around this guy and let him teach them anything. You say, because well, they would all be like, oh, he's taking advantage of you, man. He's paying you back in the day. Minimum wage was six bucks. He's like, he's paying you six bucks an hour. Oh, he's taking advantage of you. No, well, I didn't look at it that way. I didn't look at it that this guy was taking advantage of me. I looked at it that, that I wanted to go there, and this was the price that I needed to pay to get there. And this was the lane that was available to me in order to get there. Opportunity passes us by because it shows up at our door wearing work clothes. Knock, knock. Opportunity's knocking. Oh, you got work clothes on? Oh, sorry, no. I'm just going to go back and, you know, do whatever it was I was doing before. So true. Destiny. You're, you are a people of destiny. You're a people of visionaries and dreamers. Acts, chapter 2. Joel. Vi- your young men will see, young men and young women will see visions, and your older men and older women will, will, will dream dreams. We are a culture of visionaries and dreamers. It is the nature of the Christian to be a visionary and dreamer. If you are not a visionary and dreamer, you are not operating within the culture and the context of the Lord. That visions and dreams are not enough. Visions and dreams are not enough. They must be applied with, with action. There must be action and intentional decisions made into the direction in which the Lord is showing. If you do not have a plan, a purpose, a commitment, an intention, you cannot achieve the things that God is showing you. It's all wishful thinking. It's a partnership. It's a divine partnership between heaven and earth. God says you can have it, but he says this, according to your faith, so be it unto you. Matthew chapter 9. According to your willingness to commit to what it is that you believe, that's what faith is, a willingness to commit to what it is that you believe, according to your willingness to be willing to commit to what it is that you believe, you can have, and what I say, it will be done to you. It's just, that's just how it works. That's how it operates. Because the Lord says, yeah, you can have it. This is what it looks like. Yeah, you can have it. You see the same idea all through the scripture. James and John, what do they want? What do they want? They want to sit at Jesus' right hand, right? That's what they wanted. They sent their mom to go and ask for it because that was just so courageous. They're like, Mom, you go ask for us. We'll give you money. Mom, you know, you know what we want, Mom. Go ask. And Jesus told them there's a process. He said, to sit at my right hand is not mine to give. However, because you aspire to greatness, are you able to drink of the cup? 
Again, there's a process. He never corrected them for wanting something beyond themselves. Very important. Jesus does not diminish you. He does not correct you for wanting something that's beyond yourself. What he does is he points you to the process. He says, you want this? This is the price. Can you pay it? Can you pay it? And oftentimes he calls us, and, we, and all it takes for a Christian to pay it is a willingness and a surrender and a commitment to not quit. That's all it takes. The Lord will do the rest. If you'll just simply do what it is he's telling you to and endure the difficulties, he'll do the rest. Number five is prepare for problems. Why? Problems don't avoid you. Problems find you, don't they? Yeah? So we can't find problems or we can't avoid problems. Problems find us. And I had a guy a long time ago tell me, it's an issue. problems are an issue of perspective, Kevin. You can view it as a disaster or you can view it as an opportunity to grow. You can view it as a, as a, uh, as a problem or you can view it as a, as, a, um, as a challenge and something to overcome. So problems are and are um, issues of perspective. It's really what they are. So we have to have the right perspective when it comes to problems, but we also need to realize that problems are going to come and that we need to prepare for problems, right? The more healthy you are at preparing for problems, whatever it's going to be, the more wiser you will be and the more healthy you will be in making a decision. The wise see problems ahead and they prepare, but fools keep going and get into trouble. So the question is, is what could go wrong and what do I do if it does? So I'm about to make this decision, okay? I'm about to get married. Something is going to go wrong. No. We're in love. Nothing will ever go wrong. <laughs> we love each other. Well, okay. <laughs> something is going to go wrong. And the question isn't whether something will go wrong. What will you do when it does? We're going to have children. Our children are going to be amazing. We'll never have a problem with our children, ever. Yeah? I always share this. What I have learned is parents who have raised children are very slow with advice. It's true. Find a parent who has raised an adult child, and they will be very slow to give you advice. Very slow. I didn't say they wouldn't give you advice, but they will be very slow. And they will be very gracious in giving you advice. If you're a parent or an expectant parent or a would-be parent, you need to understand that those who either don't have children or are very young in the curve of raising children oftentimes are the most opinionated. Uh-huh. I would never do that with my child. How, how many children do you have? I don't have any children. But when I have children, I would never do that with my child. Uh-huh. Right. Problems are going to come, and what are you going to do when they come? How are you going to handle it? Relationally, what does it look like when we have a problem? How are we going to resolve the conflict? What's going to happen when you have problems at work? And God forbid, you ready for it? Somebody talks bad about you at work. What's going to happen? Or better yet, somebody passes you over for a promotion. What are you going to do? How are you going to handle it? Those problems are going to come. You will be passed over. I hate to tell you, you will be offended in your workplace. Uh-huh. Yeah, mm-hmm, come on. Yeah, that's right. We're coming right up the driveway, Jen, right into the, right up into the garage, right in the lane, right there. <laughs> what are you going to do? Because the way you handle it, you need to handle the problems correctly. You know, when you get married and you guys have an action plan to where you, how you're going to resolve your conflict, 
it's going to help you. And I'm not saying it's going to solve every problem, but it's going to help you. When you make these decisions, have a plan. What could go wrong and what is my action plan if it does? I'm not telling you to live according to the problem. I'm simply telling you to be prepared for it. Be, par- pre- be prepared for the challenges that come, up, come around. I'm an optimist, right? That's me. Yeah, we can do this. Absolutely. It's going to happen, right? That's me by nature. And so I try to view things in light of what can be, not what can't be. That's just how I am. But that doesn't mean that problems don't come. And the same with you. Number six is make the decision. Next slide. Oftentimes, and here we go, we, get all, we follow it all the way through the grid. And we all say we, we've, we've processed it. We've gotten our information. We've gotten the facts. We've talked to counsel. We see that, you know, this is completely in the will of the Lord or it's a completely acceptable thing for me to do. You know, I've done all of my research. I've see, I can see where the problems are going to be, and I'm prepared for it. But then we never pull the trigger. Never pull the trigger. Ladies, if you're with a guy who has not pulled the trigger... In three years, you're with the wrong guy. And all the dudes are like, you're putting me out there, man. You're putting me out there. It's true. I just like exposing the little secrets that men know. We know this amongst ourselves, but see, the women don't understand these things. What we do is we play games. Oh, yeah, I love you. Yeah, you're awesome, amazing. Blah, 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 blah. Date you for a year, year and a half. Oh, hey, you know, so where's this relationship going? Are we going to get married? Are we not? Oh, I don't know. Why do you want to get married? Why do you want to ruin everything? Because I really want a commitment. I want to know. Oh, okay, here's a ring. I'm going to marry you. It's someplace off in the distant future. When unicorns roam the land, <laughs> and rainbows are upon every house, I will marry you. And so he gives her a ring, and that buys him 18 months. And then he brings her up, and she brings it up eventually again. Within a year or 18 months, it's going to come around again. Conversation's going to get intense, and she's going to be like, do it or get rid of or, get, or break up with me. And then he goes, oh, well, we need to move in together first. We need to make sure that everything works because we don't want to get married. I know we've been together for three years, and I don't want to be married to any, you know, we don't want to get married and not have and live together. And then they get lived together. And then what ends up happening is that he never makes the decision, and the woman finds herself inevitably losing. So I tell the girls all the time, you are the ones that lose in the relationship. You are the ones that lose. The man is supposed to guard it. The man is supposed to be a man and step up and own it. But oftentimes he doesn't. The dude walks away. It's the woman that has to raise the child. It's the woman that has to take her heart out of the blender after it's been frappéed. He just goes on his merry way. Because he views you with false intent. Just saying. And other guys are like, okay, man, we're going to meet you out back. Right? We're texting each other. Get the bat out of the car. We're going to, like, we're laying fists on this guy outside right after this. Make the decision. Are you waiting for a better opportunity? If everything has, you've done your checks and balances, then pull the trigger. Take the risk. Commit to the decision that you make, whatever that may be. Perfectionism paralyzes potential. We wait for the perfect moment, the perfect time, the perfect season, the perfect world. It doesn't come. The Bible teaches us that Jesus uses imperfect people in imperfect situations to perform his perfect will. Just hold your hand up. Put your hand on your heart. Somehow demonstrate faith and say this with me. (laughs) Somehow, some way, demonstrate faith. And say this with me. I am an imperfect person in an imperfect situation, but I am willing. Therefore, 
Jesus will use me to perform his perfect will. Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes, this is my last slide, by the way. Ecclesiastes tells us this, that you get one shot. One of the themes of the book of Ecclesiastes is, is you get one ride. There's no rewind. Oh, how I'd love to rewind 10 years. Huh? I'd like to have the same knowledge that I have and just back me up 10 years. Anybody with me on that? I'll take 24, I'll take 36 months, you know, just give me three years, I don't even need 10. Just back me up three years and then let me go again. But we don't get that opportunity. Life is a series of opening and closing doors. It is a series of opening and closing moments. A series of opening and closing opportunities. And Ecclesiastes says you get one shot. You get one shot. So whatever decision you make, the implication is make a decision. Whatever decision you make, do it well. Make the decision and do it well. Don't go half-hearted. Don't do it part way. Don't kind of dip in, dip out. You know, don't do that. Whatever you do, do it well. For when you die, you're not going to have any more opportunity. I would say to the Christian, everything you do in this life is what will echo in eternity. This life is a rehearsal for the world to come. You are on display in this world. Your record of your life is being recorded. And it's recorded in the context of what you do for Jesus. Your commitment of all that you are, your time, your talent, and resources are recorded in heaven. According to what you do for him is what you are rewarded in the afterlife. You say, I'm born again, I get salvation. Yes, but there are rewards in heaven that are not equal. Say, that doesn't seem fair. It seems perfectly fair because everyone has everything that they need and more. But there are different positions and statues of honor in the kingdom. Read 1 Corinthians. Enter into the kingdom. His works are tried as hay, wood, and stubble. If any man's works are what he has done for himself, it's, burnt, it's, it's passed through the fire, and it's burned up. But they themselves are saved, but by smoke. Barely got in there, but you got in. Hey, rock on. And it says, then everyone who does the work of the Lord, their works are tried, and their works are refined by fire, and it is refined as gold and silver, and that is your death, that is your inheritance. You say, what does that look like? I don't know. I really don't know. But it gives us an idea. What God is speaking to us is in terms that we can understand. We may not be able to understand exactly what that means, and so he gives us this little simplistic window and so that we can understand what it means. It looks something like that. I don't know exactly what it means, but what I do know it means is that everything that I am in this world is to be given for him, for his glory, for his purposes, for his kingdom. That's what, I, that's where, that's what my life is for, and so is yours. You say, my job is everything. Your job is a means to an end so that you can serve the gospel. That's what your job is for, Christian. It is a means to an end so that you can serve the gospel. You are on mission where you are. That's who you are. That's what you are. We get one shot. We get one chance to serve him. Somebody said, will there be tears in heaven when Jesus comes? Tears of regret, because we wish we would have given him more. When we see what he has offered to us, and we see what it is that we can have, someone said that the tears that we shed were because we couldn't have given him more. We could have given him more. You guys ever see Schindler's List? At the end, he's buying everybody, and, and at the end, he's just looking at himself, and he's like, I could have given more. I could have sold my car. I got this pen. I could have sold this. I could you know, this, you know, and I, I could have given more. I could have done more. Leave it all on the table, man. Leave it all on the floor. Leave it all on the table. 
Four decisions you must make. You want to become who you're created to be, and you should because destiny's in your heart. First thing is you commit to Jesus as Lord. Not just Jesus as Savior, Jesus as Lord. We believe in our hearts that Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord, which means he's the ruler, he's in charge, I'm not. I submit to his lordship, his rule, his reign. That's what it means. It's not Jesus your big brother, not Jesus your best friend, not Jesus as you understand him to be. It's Jesus Christ as Lord. Commit to his lordship. Why would I commit to his lordship? Because everything God has for you is far greater than you, what you want. Everything that God has over you, he is love for you. He is Lord. Adonai, it means, it means the one who takes responsibility for you. That's what the word Adonai in Hebrew means. I am responsible for you. All that are under my care, I assume responsibility for. And Jesus says, Lord, he assumes responsibility for our lives, and he loves us, which means everything that he is doing is for your good. Who wouldn't want that? So we not only commit to Jesus' lordship, and that shifts everything in our world, but we become an active part of his family. The church is Jesus' family. People say all the time, I love Jesus, but not the church. You don't love Jesus. How do you love God whom you can't see and despise your brother who you do? We do not say, oh, I submit to Jesus, I don't submit to a church. Again, foolish ignorance, not understanding the gospel. We submit to Christ through the church. Demonstration of yieldedness to Christ is shown through the church. Huh? Wait till your father gets home, ladies. Anybody ever say that? Your kids say, oh, I obey you, Dad. I obey you, Dad. But you don't listen to the mom. You don't obey Dad. It's true. We have this disconnection with, as Christians within the church because we feel like we don't need the church. You absolutely need the church. The church is a family. Dysfunctional, imperfect, but a family, all the, all the rest. You say it's a bunch of hypocrites. Yeah, join the party. Come on down. Nobody's got it figured out. But what we are to do is love one another with sincere truth. We are to be sincere people before one another. Not false, not pretenders. We're to be sincere. Helping and gifting and loving and serving one another. Being humble when we're wrong. Admitting it when we do something stupid. And then using our love and our, our lives to bless the lives of others. And that's how we're to interact with each other. And if we interact with each other, then there's unity. Then there's wholeness. And people don't like that because what it does oftentimes is it exposes you. The church will expose you. Anybody been married or anybody that is married, you know marriage exposes you. You're not missing you. Everything that you were pretending to be is all on the table when you get married. When you wake up in the morning and it's 20, come on, Shelly, and it's 24-7, she's back there like, oh, yeah. When it's 24-7, you and her or you and him, it's all on the table. That's the way church is. But we love each other just the same. We work through our differences just the same. And what causes the fracture in relationship is one or more parties' unwillingness to change. That's what causes the fractures. The fractures aren't caused because somebody's screwed up and somebody's dysfunctional. That's not the problem. The problem is pride. The problem is an unwillingness to yield, an unwillingness to serve or submit. That's what causes the fractures. Christian, if you're going to be whole, you need to commit and connect to a church. You need to become an active part within the family. You need to apply spiritual habits to grow. This is why we don't enter destiny. We have no foundation in our lives. The foundation of, ha of spiritual growth and the foundation of spiritual habits to the believer, we call it the radical five. Read your Bible, pray, commit and connect to church, financially give and live on mission. Christian will never enter your destiny unless you have those operating in your life. 
And people ask me, they say, is that everything? No, that is the foundation upon which everything else is built. Reading your Bible accesses you to the language of the Spirit, and now you can tune in to the very things of God. There's something innate and unique in the nature of the Scripture. Praying gives you an interaction with the Spirit, both speaking and, guess what? The Holy Spirit speaks, so prayer is also listening. Committing and connecting to church helps you become the person you were called to be through servitude and submission. Jesus is all about servitude and submission. He submitted to the cross. He submitted to to the beatings, to the punishment, all of the other things. He came not as a Lord, he came as a servant. I am among you as one who serves. And we are like him, so guess what we get to do? Submit and serve. And those are two very negative words to us as individual Americans. We hate the word submission. Huh? And we hate the word servitude. Submission means come beneath a mission. Come beneath the mission. That's what it means. Sub beneath mission. So when you submit, you're coming underneath the mission of God. When you submit in a marriage, you're coming underneath the mission that God has for you to your wife. You're coming under the mission that God has for you for you towards your husband. It doesn't mean you're a doormat. It simply means God intends for my mission to my wife is to love her and to seek the highest good and to bless her and to take care of her and to provide for her. I submit to her in that way. I come beneath the mission of God towards my wife to honor my husband, to respect my husband, to build him up, to be a help a helper to him and to help him become who he's supposed to be. I come beneath that mission that God has for me towards my husband. That's what it means. Submission to the church. Oh, how we hate that. Submission to the church means come beneath the mission of the church. What is the mission of the church? To make disciples, to take you from where you are into where you're supposed to be, to reach the world for Christ. Come beneath the mission of the church. That's what it means. Submission. Applying these things, these spiritual habits, using your abilities and your resources to do what? Expand the kingdom and and, and help others. Kind of get off the bench. You're not created to be an attender. If you let's just say it together. If I do not grow, then I will end up go. I didn't go in. (laughs) If you're not growing in your relationship to Jesus, you will go away from it. Mark it down. If you're not growing in your marriage, you will go away from it. If you're not growing as a person, you will go away from your identity. That's just, it's just the facts. We have to grow. If you're not growing, you will go. And so when you come and become a part of a community and part of a church, you're called into a process of growing, growing, growing. So one of the things we're trying to orient around this church around is getting people to grow, taking you from where you are to where you need to be. We're creating different lanes for that to happen. But that God forbid that you stay the same. If you stay in any church for any length of time and you do not grow within that church, not just receive the message, but begin to apply yourself into the mission, you're going to be distracted. It's inevitable. You have to grow. Lastly, share Jesus with others. So I said, not everybody's Billy Graham, but everybody's an Andrew. We can all invite. What does inviting look like? Come and hear what I'm hearing. Man, I'm really just, my life is changing, and I'm just really getting a lot out of this, and you should come and hear what I'm hearing. Come and meet the one that I have met. Come and receive the one who's changed me. That's what it looks like to invite. Just come and see. That's all, that's all it is. Come and see. Just invite people all the time. I think we've got a stack of your invited cards over there. You should take some with you. I hand them out all the time. All the time. I was at KB's, and they're all looking at the cards on the table. I walked right up to them, and they're like, hey. What are you guys looking at? And they're like, oh, this, we're looking at this church. This is an unusual church. I'm like, oh, yeah? 
And they, and they go, where do you live? And they're like, oh, we live around here. And I'm like, oh, I'm a pastor of that church. They're like, no way, no way. So I started doling out cards. Just give them cards. Just say, hey, come check it out. I don't preach Jesus to them and salvation. I'm not sitting there going sin, righteousness, and judgment right there in the room. You know, just invite people. Invite people. Let them hear the life-giving message of Christ and let them have an opportunity to receive him, which I'm about to do for all of you. If you've never received Jesus in your heart, it's easy. It couldn't get more simple. He's done all the work. He's put the bar on the floor. And he said, can you move from here to there? Can you open your heart? Can you do this? Then I'll save you. Can you do this? Then I'll forgive you. It's that simple. And so if you're here this morning and you've never asked Jesus into your heart, I didn't say your mind, I said your heart. This prayer is for you. So we're going to pray two prayers. We'll have a prayer team available afterwards if you need further prayer. We're going to pray two prayers. One is an invitational prayer. The last one is a blessing. And then we're going to dismiss. And if that's you and you're here this morning and you've never asked Jesus into your heart, I want to give you an opportunity to do so. Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you'll open the door to me, I will come in and I will be with one with you. I will have common union with you and you will have common union with me. So if you're here this morning and you've never done that, I want to give you the opportunity. We're going to pray together as a group. And all you got to do is just open your heart and receive. You don't have to understand it. You have to believe it. And belief and understanding are two different worlds. So let's just pray together. Dear Jesus, I believe that you are the Savior. And I need a Savior. And so I open my heart to you, Jesus. And I ask you to come inside and be my Lord. You to forgive me. I ask you to heal me. I ask you to restore me. And I ask you to repurpose my life. All that I am, I give to you. And all that you are, I receive as mine. From this day forward, I choose to follow you. In Jesus' name. So that's it. Well, that's the start of it.